The following audio is from The Well. We are a church that is committed to gospel growth, family formation, and missional engagement in Hastings, Nebraska. More information about The Well can be found at www.thewellhastings.com. We hope the message you are about to hear will spur you on to growing in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be formed as a follower of Jesus, and to be engaged in the mission of Jesus to seek and to save the lost within a yard of hell. Here's the word of God to us. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaimed the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium, and Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him. And he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. And as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily." And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision... Immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So this is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Let me pray. Father, uh, Lord, we come before you and admit that uh, we are absolutely, utterly incapable of uh, doing the things you call us to do, incapable of hearing from you. And so, Father, we need your help. Um, We need your spirit to come and awaken our hearts, and open our eyes, that we, might, that we might desire, that we might see, help us to hear um, the story of the gospel in the midst of this story, in the midst of the book of Acts. Come and give us your spirit so that we might um, want to draw close to you. Uh, Father, I pray that you come and help, help us to think about what it means um, to pursue the calling of ministry that you have on every believer's life. Um, reawaken uh, our hearts towards what it means to uh, serve others in the ministry of the gospel. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. Hey, so here's the thing. One of the core teachings of the Bible is that every Christian is called to do gospel ministry. Now, that might surprise you to hear that. Maybe it doesn't. Let me say it again. This is one of the core teachings of the Bible. That every Christian, the moment you begin following Jesus, you are then called 
to be a part of gospel ministry. One way that we say this is that every Christian is a minister. The Great Commission in uh, Matthew 28, you might remember that, right? Go into all the world, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them um, how they are to live in obedience to the words of Jesus. That's Matthew 28 in my own summary. That's a command to all of us, not just to ministers who stand on stages. Uh, the teaching of Ephesians 4 also um, compounds and helps to build this theology that every Christian is called to be a minister, doing the work of ministry. That is the core theme of what's going on in the text in front of us, to trust God while doing the work of ministry. Some of the images that I think might be helpful to you that I've carried in my pocket and I will oftentimes pull out and look at are these two images. The first image is this. It's very simple. God loves to draw straight lines with broken sticks. <laughs> that might sound really emotional because it is for me, right? God loves to draw straight lines with broken sticks. You and I are both broken. And that's no excuse for not pursuing God in ministry as he's called us to. God loves to draw straight lines with broken sticks. Second image I'll pull out of my pocket and look at sometimes is this. That God loves to do surgery on wounded people with other broken people. The image might sound different if you say God loves to do surgery on wounded people with broken instruments. It's another way of saying it. In fact, there's a book that has that title, Deeply Affected Me. So keep those two images in your mind. Because here's the reality. When it comes to ministry, we're talking about doing people work at the end of the day. Even if you're mowing a lawn and that's your ministry, you're still going to work with people at some point. And here's the reality. Every one of us is broken because of sin, which means we all hurt in peculiar ways. And you know what happens when you get a room full of hurting people? Hurting people hurt people, right? And that's just part of what it means to be in the family of God. Or a room full of hurting people that will occasionally, if not oftentimes, hurt other people as we look forward to the hope of heaven in that relationships would be restored completely. This is a calling where there is no shortage when you think about ministry. It's a calling where there's no shortage of broken and hurting people who are being used by God to extend his kingdom. So I want you to keep that in mind. All of what I've just said, keep that in mind as we look at the text and make our way through it. First thing we see in the text is that Paul really wants to visit the churches that he planted previously, right? And you look at verses 36 through 41, and Paul explains to Barnabas that he wants to return and visit the brothers in every city where they had proclaimed the word of the Lord to see how they're doing. And of course, what does this lead to? Well, it leads to a, a joyful taking off out of the city, and they're together, right? They're going to go, no, that's not what happens. That's not what happens at all. What happens is, Paul and Barnabas wind up having a really sharp disagreement. Now, the original Greek there, and this is no joke, I'm not asking that question. Um, 
The original Greek there, as you read it, when it says sharp disagreement, you can, you can definitely put the image of two man, men, grown men, standing in a room having a very sharp disagreement. This is voices raised. This is nose to nose. This is fingers pointing at one another. This is no light disagreement whatsoever. The original Greek is very heavy language. I am certain that Paul and Barnabas both said some things at the top of their lungs that they wish they'd never said. There's something we can learn in this as we think about it, that sometimes we have a tendency to idolize the characters in the Bible and forget that they are very human and that even in that human brokenness, God still works. So what happens here is they have a very sharp disagreement about who should be part of the team, right? Barnabas wants to give his cousin Mark a second chance. Uh, but the Apostle Paul does not want a deserter on the team. Now, I can empathize with the Apostle Paul, but I can also empathize with Barnabas, Right? Like, Barnabas is like, yo, my cousin is coming along. He's growing. He's really sorry for deserting us earlier. He'd like to go with us. And Paul's over. So I, I really empathize with that because I like, God is the God of second chances, right? But then you got Paul over here, and he's like, no, yo, bro, this guy abandoned us. We ain't taking him with us. And I can empathize with him, too, because there's a leadership perspective there that you need to be cognizant of the mission ahead of you, and should you have a deserter on your team, someone who just left? Right? For no good reason. Because he was afraid. So that's, that's, that's what's taking place. The argument between these two great men of God winds up ending, kind of, with Barnabas taking John Mark off to Cyprus on a boat. Right? Getting in a boat with their tapioca and their bags. That's, that's my best Minnesotan accent. <laughs> they hop in a boat. And, uh, and Paul, Paul grabs this dude named Silas. Uh, and they go to visit the churches that he planted. And you'll notice in the text that it actually says that when Paul leaves, he leaves with the approval of the church in Antioch. So the, the context is like, hey, the church isn't looking at Barnabas and Paul and be like, hey, you two need to sit down because you're arguing too much. It's actually more like the church is going, okay, you two broken men of God who have done some really great things, go ahead and go your own separate ways. We're blessing you as you go. Go do the work of ministry, right? So that's the context of what's taking place. When I think about this event, Paul and Barnabas parting ways, like I think that we have to acknowledge some things, don't we? We have to acknowledge that relational conflict is probably one of the heaviest blows that you're going to experience while trying to trust God in the midst of the work of ministry. Just one of the heaviest blows. And the reality is I think that all of us want to see, we long to see relationships restored. We long to see those relationships come back together. But you know what we're guilty of sometimes? If I'm going to be honest, if, just, just from my own experience, I, at least I know I am. Maybe you'll say, yeah, I'm with you, we are in this together. But I think that sometimes I am and maybe you are guilty of trying to see something happen now that isn't meant to happen until later. Uh, you, if you did a study on this and you went to the book of 2 Timothy, it's many, many, many years later before the Apostle Paul finally goes, hey, yo, I'm on my deathbed, I'm about to get my head chopped off, and by the way, I need some people to come encourage me, and one of the people that I want to come that would be most helpful to me in ministry is this man named John Mark. 
So I think that sometimes our desire to see a very good thing and seeing restoration happen, reconciliation happen, confrontation for the wrong things that took place in the conflict, our desire to see that good thing happen can sometimes put us in a place of disobedience to God if we push it too hard. Because God has a plan that we don't know anything about. I'm not saying you don't pursue restoration and reconciliation. What I'm saying is, when you butt your head up against a closed door, you really shouldn't try to kick it in. Because the Holy Spirit may have closed that door for a reason. I don't know what the reasons are in this story. I just know that the Apostle Paul and John Mark did not reconcile until near the end of Paul's life, if John Mark ever made it there before Paul died. But I do know this. That longing that we have for that reconciliation and that restoration, for all things to be made right... What I do know is that Jesus said he came here to set up his kingdom on earth. Yes and amen. That excites me and encourages me. But you know what else? We've also been promised that heaven is the place where that will be done once and for all. And so I can let go of my desire to control things and force things this side of heaven by looking forward to the hope of heaven. I hope that that would encourage you if you're facing some of this in your own life. Nothing hurts more deeply, I think, outside of maybe the loss of a child or the loss of a close friend through death, loss of a family member. I don't think anything hurts more deeply than the pain of a sharp disagreement that leads to relational separation from someone that you have served side by side with for so long. You've got to remember, Paul and Barnabas together, they have faced the difficulties of severe opposition to their ministry. They've, they've witnessed God doing the impossible as they ministered together for years. And yet, God chose not to resolve this conflict between these two great men of God. Or at the very least, these two great men of God could not find a godly way to resolve their conflict. Now, here's the beauty of the story. The story doesn't end with their separation. I think that sometimes you and I, when we look at relational separation, division, brokenness, conflict, I think that when we look at that and we experience it, we think the world is over, right? It's like that, is it the cloudy with a chance of meatballs movie? You know, the sky is falling. The world is ending. You know, when I speak to you about this, I'm not trying to make judgment calls on where you're at. I'm just telling you, this has been my experience in my own ministry. Something falls apart, a relationship falls apart, somebody leaves, they're mad, I'm mad, whatever it may be, and I think the whole world is going to end. And I think that for a long time. And it takes a while for God to get me back on the right track. And here's the reason why. I fail to trust God. I just, I just fail to trust him. I can tell you in the moment, if you ask me, how you doing, Joe, with that, I'll be like, oh, I'm just trusting God. This freaking sucks. You know, that's what's going on inside of my heart. Let's fail to trust God. The beauty about this story is it doesn't end with their separation. Think about it this way. This story actually moves forward. Okay? It doesn't stall out with both of them sitting on the sidelines, flipping the bird at each other, right? Writing little Facebook things. Um, oh, we love to do that. I do too. It's bad. Anyways, that's not what they're doing. The story moves 
forward. Both of them proceed forward, but they proceed forward in two different directions, right? To do what? To continue the work of ministry. One of the craziest things about Baptist life, and I never thought I would ever call myself a Baptist, okay? But I am a fat Baptist, just like Spurgeon, so I feel like I'm okay, and I might go to heaven. Um, one of the crazy things about Baptist life is as you start to do work with some of the other churches in the, in the local group, you'll find that at some point there was this massive division in this church. Sometimes it's over something so stupid like the color of the carpet. Should we get a real piano or should we have a, you know, a keyboard? Just all sorts of craziness. And, and a whole division will take place, right? And, and the church that divides and leaves, and there's, then there's the church that stays, and this, this group leaves, and they go right across the street on the other corner and they build themselves a whole new church. And you got First Baptist Church of God on this corner, and you got Second Baptist Church of God on that corner, and it's just wild and ridiculous. And on one side, when I experience, when I work with churches that have that have done that, I'm like, man, this just makes me angry. Why don't the two of you like pool your resources and like do something that actually brings glory to God? And and uh, and the reality is, here's the deal: God works in the midst of that, and God worked in the midst of this story, right? What God was previously doing through Paul and Barnabas together, he's now going to continue doing through them separately, right? If you think about this even further, you chase the bunny trail a moment further and you're thinking, it could even be said that God actually doubled their ministry outreach, right? Think about this. As these two men separated and went two completely different directions, what did God do? God added John Mark alongside of Barnabas, and he added a dude named Silas alongside the Apostle Paul. So he's effectively doubled the ministry efforts going on. Not all is lost when friends go different directions. Sometimes I have had to learn to get past my bitterness and my resentment and my hurt of somebody leaving, whether well or poorly, and recognize that God just might be taking that person to another congregation so that he might double the ministry efforts. It's humbling to think that way. Sometimes God doubles his ministry reach when things like this happen. Oftentimes, this is what I notice, when a relationship goes south in the church, um, God uses the holes that are left behind from those people going He uses those holes to raise up new leaders, even as he strengthens those who have left. Even when the disagreement is very sharp, again, as it usually is, okay? Like, let's let's be honest and just say disagreements are typically never this little light and fluffy Western idea of, oh, I'm going to be nice to you and you're going to be nice to me as we separate. It doesn't go that way. It just doesn't. Separation is hard. It's painful. Hard things get said that should have never been said. Because we're human. So even when the disagreement is very sharp, as it often is, I see that more often than not, God uses that situation to grow a deeper longing for God as he matures all of the parties involved. What God literally does in situations like this is he strengthens the church. It doesn't weaken it. He strengthens the church through the hardship of relational separation. I'm always reminded that God uses the foolish things. The things that we go, that is the foolish way. It's the stupidest way to think about growing a church. God uses those foolish things that we think of to actually do the exact opposite. And think about it. Why would we ever expect anything less from God anyways? 
It's not a miracle otherwise, is it? Like if I sit down with my little strategic growth chart and a, and a whiteboard with a bunch of leaders and go, and it's good to do that, don't hear me wrong. But if I do that and I don't leave room and space for conflict and brokenness and relationships going south in the midst of that and just go, you know what, in the midst of those things, I'm going to trust. Like we're going to keep plodding ahead because we think God's called us to this. I'm going to trust that what God is going to do in the midst of that is something really miraculous. It's not miraculous if you don't have some hardship in the midst of doing ministry. That's why we need to trust God in the midst of doing ministry, right? And what he does is he literally strengthens the church in the midst of that hardship. Brings me to the second portion of our text. In the second portion of the text, verses 1 through 5, chapter 16, Paul does visit the churches that he planted. In these verses, he takes off with Silas, right? Um, They're uh, trudging down the road in their flip-flops. And uh, they visit the churches that he had planted with Barnabas on their first missionary trip. And as he comes to a place called Lystra, or Lystra, depending upon what part of the world you're from, when he comes to that city, this is the place, you have to remember, this is key, I think, this is the place where he was stoned for his preaching. And he was left for dead outside the city, right? In that place, from years previous, in that place, that's where he finds this young man named Timothy. And Timothy had an unbelieving father as well as a believing mother, okay? Um, Paul finds Timothy to be suitable as a recruit for the work of ministry. So what's the first thing he does? Hey, bro, we need to get you into some theological classes, okay? We need to sit down and study the Bible every week together. Um, I need to get you some, uh, some training on doing, like, strategic reconnaissance for the church. So, on, so I mean, he's get you some business degree, maybe, so that you can run the QuickBooks, uh, we're going to get you trained in the, in the proclaimed presentation so that the words pop on the screen. No, he doesn't do any of that, does he? Well, the first thing he does, has him circumcised. I want you to think about the significance of this. Paul recruits a grown man and says, hey, first act of preparation, we're going to go out back behind the church. I'm going to grab my knife, my little flint knife. And they have like super sharp knives. I'm going to grab this little piece of flint rock and we're going to circumcise that little piece of skin. You know what my answer is? If somebody goes, this is how you're going to get recruited to ministry, my answer is, oh, heck no. No, I'm out. I'm going to go to one of the churches over there in America because it's a lot easier there. I just take some classes. I don't have to get circumcised. All right? That's the first thing he does with Timothy. Now, I also want you to think, um, as one commentator mentioned that I was studying on this text, he mentioned, he goes, hey, think about the significance of this too. The Apostle Paul meets Jesus shortly after he approves of the murder through stoning, throwing rocks at a man named Stephen. Shortly after that is when Paul meets Jesus, when Jesus gets a hold of him, right? It's through that act of stoning a believer, first martyr in the scriptures. I have a feeling that part of the way that Timothy first meets Jesus as a young Jewish believer is when Paul walks into his community, preaches the gospel, and says, hey, everything you've been taught by your mother and your grandmother, everything you've learned all these years about God, you want to know something? It points to Jesus, and that's who you need to trust in. And in that moment, he gets stoned by some of the people in the city and dragged out of the city and left for dead. Timothy is watching this take place. And then that same man, Paul, gets up off the ground, which I think is crazy, and he runs off to another town and preaches. No, he doesn't do that, does he? He doesn't run off to another town and preach. You know what he does? He gets up off the ground, he walks right back into that same city and preaches again. 
and put yourself in Timothy's shoes in terms of ministry preparation and thinking about what ministry, the kind of toll that it will take on you, Timothy's watching that take place. He's going, yo, this dude comes and preaches. Jesus gets stoned, left for dead, gets up. He's still alive. Comes back into my city, preaches again. This man, this man is doing something like God's doing something in his life. And then he comes back, right, a few years later to find Timothy again. Timothy's going like, yo, I remember you. You were that guy that was here. You preached that massive crusade thing. You got stoned. You almost died. And Paul's like, you know what? I think you should come with me. I think we should go out and do ministry together. And Timothy's like, ah, I'd love that. Yeah, well, let's get you circumcised. So that's where we're at. He gets him circumcised. Now, the reason that he circumcises him, because let's not forget part of the argument that just took place, right? There was some circumcision party. They were like, hey, you can't be saved if you're not circumcised. And Paul goes, yo, that is legalism. We're not going there. So doesn't it kind of seem inconsistent now that he wants to circumcise Timothy? It does kind of seem a little inconsistent, doesn't it? Does Paul lack integrity? Did Paul change his mind? He fought so hard back in Jerusalem, he's still carrying the letter so that they can give it to the churches and let them know, hey, yo, you can be saved, but you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. Happy day! But Timothy, you, on the other hand, we're going to have to have a talk out back. Maybe Timothy's like, wait a minute. Did I just get duped? I I thought you said... I don't follow Jesus, I'm saved, but why don't I get circumcised? Now, the text doesn't tell us exactly, right? But it, it logical conclusion as you study, logical conclusion here is this. I think that he had him circumcised so that he would not hinder the ministry among the Jews because Timothy is half Jewish. Silas, on the other hand, is a Greek. So he's actually, I think he's actually doing something that will help their ministry so as not to shut the doors down. If Timothy was not half Jewish, I don't think Paul would have had him circumcised. But since he's half Jewish, I think for him it makes sense. They wanted to be able to continue the work of ministering to those churches that Paul had planted and continue doing work where there were Jewish believers present. And Luke even says, you look at verse 5, he says, um, he does this so so that the, the churches were strengthened in the faith, and as they're being strengthened in the faith, they increase in numbers daily. And that's happening simply because of the ministry of Paul and Silas and now Timothy, okay? So follow the thought pattern, follow the storyline here. Not only has God given Paul some fresh help in Silas, as Silas joins him in the ministry, but God goes the extra mile and he gives the Apostle Paul the gift of this young Timothy. And the reality here is that God has plans for us, okay? God has plans for us. And he also has plans for the extension of his kingdom. And those plans we typically know nothing about. They're far beyond our understanding. You think about this. If Barnabas had stayed with Paul, Barnabas may not have been a good fit for Paul's future ministry. It's possible that what Paul needed least was a softer encourager like Barnabas. And what Paul needed more was a couple of young men that would just run really, really hard into the face of danger. Might have been what he needed more. Who knows? At the end of the day, uh, we know that Timothy certainly becomes Paul's right-hand man, uh, even to the extent that Timothy becomes the pastor of the church in Ephesus that Paul had planted. And you might even think about the two letters that Paul writes near the end of his life to Timothy. We know them as First and Second Timothy. We've preached through those here. They're on our website. As he writes those letters to Timothy, we we are given two letters that are super important for the health of 
the church in all ages. So it could be surmised that possibly, if this had never happened, would we ever have those letters? I'm sure God would have found another way, but this was part of God's plan, right? So we should never underestimate what God may do through the pain and difficulty of relational division. If you've experienced some of that relational brokenness, some of that relational division, you and I can take heart and be encouraged that we don't know what God may do in the centuries to come, if we're here that long, through that pain and through that difficulty. You might also think of the horror of the cross of Christ. Apply that to this thinking as well. In light of the cross of Christ and the horror of what took place there, our light and momentary relational afflictions in this world, this snap of the finger, this blink of an eye, this breath, the things we face in this world will always be used by God at some point to extend his kingdom to the ends of the earth. Again, it's not the way we would choose to do things, is it? (laughs) We would not choose to build the church this way. God's ways are far above our own. Agreed? So I think the takeaway here for me as I think about this second portion of the text (coughs) is that even when things are not going the way I want them to, I need to trust that God has a plan that far surpasses my understanding and that he will ultimately use even the most painful experiences in ministry to extend the gospel to the ends of the earth. Again, I come back to what I need to do is trust God. I need to trust God in his sovereign ability. I need to hang on for the ride that's ahead, right? And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul does in the remainder of our text. He hangs on for the ride. Because the third thing you see in the final portion is that Paul gets this call to go to Macedonia. And this is kind of, I think, where some of it all really starts to come together for us in the storyline. Verses 6 through 10, Paul and his ministry team, right? They wind up in this place called Troas. Now, if you look at the text closely enough, you'll notice they wind up in Troas after trying to go to two different places. They try to go to Asia, and they try to go to Bithynia. They're like, yo, I don't even know where we're supposed to go now. Let's try to go to uh, Bithynia. Oh, that doesn't work. Let's try to go to Asia. Well, that doesn't work. Anybody ever had that experience, even just in ministry, like trying to serve somebody? It's like, oh, I thought we were supposed to do this, but that didn't work. Door got closed. Slam. So we'll go this way. Oh, the door got closed. Slam. What are we going to do now? He gets rerouted twice when you look at verses 6 and 7. And he literally says, says the spirit of god the spirit of christ rerouted us it was god all along invisibly orchestrating what's taking place in his call on apostle paul's life and his team (coughs) so god reroutes them twice before they landed in troas now troas is not far from a place called you guessed it ding 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 macedonia not very far from there at all right And in Macedonia, this leads the team to finally conclude that this is the reason for the two previously closed doors. In fact, it seems so obvious to them that in verse 10 they say, hey, this is the place that God has called us to preach the gospel to. So what's going on is they're like, yo, we're going to head this way. Door closed. Oh, shoot. Okay, we're going to head this way. Oh, door closed. Oh, man, I thought we were headed the right way. Man, like the the strategic plan said we should go that way. The books all said if we go that way, it's going to go this way. And it didn't go that way. So I guess we're going to go this way. Oh, while we're there, we get this calling. And it becomes clear. All of the hardship that we've previously experienced, all of the closed doors led to this clear path right here in Macedonia. Think about it. In the midst of dealing with the desire to preach the gospel to the lost, 
in the midst of doing the work of strengthening the churches that had already been planted, while still reeling in shock, I think, from this sudden separation from Barnabas, Paul receives this clear call to go minister in Macedonia. And this is going to be a place that is highly crucial, very pivotal for the rest of the book of Acts. So I want you to hear this. Sometimes the pathway of following God's call on your life is filled with lots of closed doors. Sometimes the pathway of following God's call on your life will be filled with lots of painful experiences. Sometimes the pathway of following God's call on your life will be filled with lots of foggy moments. Sometimes the pathway of following God's call on your life will be filled with very brief moments of clarity. And sometimes the pathway of following God's call on your life may also be filled with a few very miraculous experiences where people's lives are radically changed. Let's just think about what it would have been like to be the Apostle Paul at this moment, at the end of the text, to look back over at least months, if not all the years surveyed from the time he starts following Jesus and receives that clear call till now. All of his experience. To look back and to see the many believers who were the fruit of his ministry in the midst of that. This is a challenge for all of us, I think. To look ahead and go, hey God, where are you calling me to? What ministry are you calling me to be invested in? How would you like me to get off the sidelines? What unique pain and hurt are you carrying that you've not trusted God to deal with that you need to trust him to deal with? As I conclude our time here, um, when I think about trusting God in the midst of the difficulties of ministry, when I remember some of my own experiences, um, lots of closed doors, lots of painful experiences, lots of foggy moments, these brief moments of clarity, but also lots of miraculous experiences where people's lives were radically changed. I think about that. Um, I can see how God definitely up until this point has used every last drop of those experiences to deepen my trust in him. I think sometimes in ministry we we get caught up in a romantic vision of all the work we're going to do and and it's true but I think we miss the key the most important thing. Somebody once told me that the most important thing about Every Christian being a minister is this. And he said, hey, you know, while God definitely is concerned about what he's going to do through you in your ministry, God is far more concerned about what he's going to do in you in ministry. The thing that God did in Paul through his ministry, really, is that he led him to places of desperation where he would need to depend upon God alone for everything. I think Paul was a voracious leader. Definitely had a high intellect. Definitely also had an ability, I don't know what that is. Is Jesus coming back? Hey, it went away. <laughs> that scared me too, for a minute. 
<laughs> I think what God did in the Apostle Paul was brought him to a place of sheer dependence upon God alone. Because Paul was a man with high intellect, high ability as a leader, I think. And it would be so easy to depend upon himself alone in the midst of that. And I think we all get into that, right, at times. And I think we also get enamored with the ideas of what may be the product of our ministry uh, versus going, hey, maybe the product of our ministry just needs to be that, that God grows us deeply in that. To the hardships of ministering to others, um, the time and the talent and the treasure and the blood and the sweat and the tears and the heartache, all of that had the effect of leading the Apostle Paul closer to the Father's heart as he trusted God in the midst of doing ministry. You think about this, when, when Paul wrote, writes, when he wrote Romans 8, there's this key place in there where he talks about his Abba Father. Right? Paul knew what it was like to come into the presence of his Abba Father in desperation. And sure, Paul struggled with his own sin, his own brokenness, but he also struggled with the brokenness and sin of others as he fought to keep his head in the game through relational division, through foggy days, painful experiences, and he just he, he kept his head to the grindstone, right? Just kept moving. Waiting for God to say, hey, this is where you're to go. No, don't go here, don't go here, go here. He just kept waiting, seeking God in the midst of that. Paul knew what it meant to cling to the finished work of Jesus as he navigated the oftentimes murky and troubled waters of being a broken man who was called to minister to other broken people. I think, I think Paul knew the Jesus who faced rejection and abandonment and betrayal from his closest friends, while he was still going to the cross for those friends. Paul also knew the Jesus who left the tomb empty, even though death's dark shadow appeared to win the battle three days earlier. And he also knew the Jesus who promised that he would return to vanquish evil once and for all and to lead us into the eternal presence of our Father in heaven. So here's the reality Maybe you're in a place today where you just feel weary from all the sacrifices you've made in ministry. or Maybe you've been hurt by some of the losses that are inevitable as it pertains to serving other broken people. Or, or maybe you're on the front edge of following God into a ministry calling that's not completely defined yet. Maybe, maybe you're just sitting on the sidelines, not engaged in ministry for one reason or the other. And to the last one, to, to those of you who are sitting on the sidelines, not engaged in ministry for whatever reason, I want to encourage you, get, get your life into the game. There's no other place where, where you learn to trust God more. Like your ability to trust God will grow deeper as you follow him obediently in ministry. And to all the others, I want to also encourage you. I want to encourage you to remember the cross of Jesus where he suffered in ministry far more than we ever will. To others, let me also encourage you. Let me encourage you to remember the cross of Jesus where he suffered in ministry far more than you ever will. I want to encourage you to remember the empty tomb of Jesus whereby you and I gain the hope of Satan, sin, and death getting curb stomped once and for all.
I want to encourage you to remember that heaven is right around the corner. Like, think about it. How fun will it be to, to walk into heaven on that final day with all of those whom you have directly affected through your ministry? Clean tightly. Clean tightly to our crucified, risen, and returning Jesus through regular times in scriptures and regular times in prayer and regular times spent with God's people. And when, when some of the doors get shut, when some of the painful experiences come into your life that, that seem like they're too much to bear, when everything seems or feels a foggier than it should be, you'll be able to trust God. You'll be able to trust God in the midst of the work of ministry because the cross was bloody for you too, not just for those whom you serve. And the tomb was left empty for you too, not just for those whom you serve. And the promise of eternity is for you too, not just for those whom you serve. The reality is that the closer you draw to Jesus and the deeper you walk into the sacrifices and the hardships of ministry, the more you'll find hope, true, lasting hope that will strengthen you through every season. See, God has a plan for your ministry. It may not look like what you think it should, but at the same time, he's in full control, even though you, you attempt to take control, and even though sometimes it feels like chaos, he's in full control. And in the midst of the closed doors, in the midst of the painful experiences, in the midst of the foggy roads, God will give you glimpses of clarity that will lead to you witnessing some of the most miraculous works of God in people's lives. So final word, hang on to our crucified, risen, and returning Jesus through thick and through thin and you will see God advancing his kingdom in ways that will deepen your ability to hold on to him. And also in ways that will leave you breathless as you survey his power at work in and through you. As he uses you, a crooked stick, to draw straight lines. And uses you, a broken instrument, to do surgery on those who need him. Amen. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this challenge today. As we observe the Apostle Paul walking under the power of your spirit through thick and through thin, through closed doors, through hard, difficult, relational conflict, in the midst of foggy seasons, not knowing where to go. But then ultimately, Father, hearing from your spirit and receiving that call to Macedonia, Lord God, help us to be filled with the same spirit so that we might follow you and be used as crooked sticks to draw straight lines, broken instruments to do surgery on those who need you. I trust you to do that in Jesus' name. Amen.